coming to you live from Canada. Here comes your game-changing, life-transforming turning point moment. <clears throat> yes, this is the sign you've been looking for. You're listening to Engage City Church. Powered by hope, not hype. Online at engagechurch.ca. Our lives change, God, and transform and, and become more like you. And God, today we just pray that you would begin new processes in us, God, that you'd speak life into us and that um, if, there's, if there's things, God, that, that you want to change or that you want to uh, take a different direction, Lord, that you'd even do that right now um, as I'm preaching, God. And we thank you for who you are, God. We thank you that you're never done with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So there's something about May that I really love. Uh, it might be because there's like some of the coolest people in the world's birthday is in May. Um, Pastor Brett thinks I'm talking about him, but it's actually, I was talking about myself. Um, no, I was just joking. Pastor Brett is, is the guy. Who else has a birthday in May? See, the, May is a great, does anyone else have a birthday on May 15th? Okay, that's very sad. Jordan Eberly does, but everyone hates Jordan Eberly right now, so I'm not going to brag about that, but that's my birthday. Um, but there's something great about May. It's, it's you know, there's this, this just attitude of excitement. There's new things that are happening, and and I sometimes think it's because of my birthday I like May. Uh, sometimes I think that it's because we don't have to fear having a snowstorm during the week. Uh, we still have to kind of fear it during the weekend. I'm not going to say that we're not going to have one tomorrow because we very well could. But the reality is the reason that I love May so much is because May brings with it brand new life. You look everywhere around you and there's life just bursting forth. <clears throat> Yesterday, <clears throat> I was in my backyard and I actually have... Uh, some pollen in my throat. Uh, I don't believe in allergies, but I think I might have an allergy to pollen. And so um, yesterday I was in my backyard and my computer's getting all dusty with pollen and stuff and then my throat started hurting, so if I cough, that's why. But I was in my backyard and I was looking over and, and Haley and I got this uh, birdhouse, which, a couple goals, right? So we got this birdhouse and we installed it in our tree, which means that we found two branches that were semi-secure and laid it on top. And yesterday there was like six birds just like circling, like checking out the birdhouse. And I'm just like, honestly, guys, it's a pretty good house. Like you might want to live here. Uh, we need to audition to make sure your song's nice enough to wake up to in the morning. But, you know, check it out. So there's these birds and then there's butterflies flapping across the lawn. And there's ladybugs crawling. And unfortunately, there was also uh, some mosquitoes. Uh, they came out in a real force this weekend. So do your part and kill as many as you can. And, but all of these things, what they do is they point to new life. They point to a new start. Even the trees, um, just like that weird uh, video that I showed you guys that kind of creeps me out when I watch it a little bit because you're not supposed to watch plants grow. Um, the, the leaves burst from the trees and it's like, where, like they've been hiding away and they just burst forth and the whole, everything seems alive. It's an amazing time. And one of the best things about it actually is that sometimes in the winter, we don't realize like why we're like pretty much depressed. Um, and we're just like eating all these like terrible junk foods all the time. And it's like, I need, I need to eat this, you know? <laughs> and the reason is because in the winter, you know, like a plus six day is like paradise in the winter. But then it comes to summer and you realize plus six is like really cold. Like if you put your thermostat to plus six in your house, I would actually love it. But Haley would hate it. And most, uh, most people would hate it. And it's just like this, you forget that, you forget that in winter, you know, 
all of, there's new life, the birds come back, and, and all of these things happen in the summer, and these are the things that you forget about, and some of the best, the best things about spring. And what spring also does is it gives us an opportunity to garden. So a few weeks ago, we had our volunteer appreciation dinner, which was amazing. Thank you guys all who, who serve here. And one of the things that we had is we had a little gift for each person, and it was a little jar with thyme seeds in it, and there was like a little tag on it that said, thank you for your time." right? Pinterest, right? Um, and so I got, I took three home uh, because there was extras. So um, just being honest, there's actually some on the, on the shelves over there if anyone wants to take them. So feel free. Um, but I've been watering them every day and the thyme is starting to sprout and there's like, they're just like growing up. And, and the thing that's crazy about plants is like they always grow when you're not looking. So it's just this weird thing about plants, but, but you're able to plant in the spring. And so um, my fiance Haley, she, she planted a whole bunch of seeds uh, next to my house. And there are a bunch of flowers and other little plants that she planted. And, and since then, we actually haven't seen any growth from the plants, which is very, very sad. Um, but there has been growth from dandelions. Now, dandelions are the enemy, so we are waging our war against them as well. Dandelions and mosquitoes, guys, fight the good fight. Um, but the thing about spring is that you're able to plant, you're able to start putting something in the ground. And when Haley planted, you know, let's say she planted a raspberry bush. Well, if she planted a raspberry bush, the one thing I know is that either nothing's going to come out of the ground or a raspberry bush is going to come out of the ground. I can't expect that if I plant a raspberry bush that an apple tree is going to come out of the ground. That's just not what, that's not what happens when you plant raspberry bushes. So let's turn to Exodus 23, verse 20. Does anyone have their Bible here today? Yeah. Thank you, Pastor Brett. 23, it's actually verse 23. So to just give a little bit of background, um, we're, we, we arrive on the scene of this, this story, and the Israelites had just been in Egyptian captivity for about 400 years. Moses had come in. All the plagues had happened in Egypt. God had released the Israelites from the Egyptian bondage. They they get to the Red Sea, and the Egyptians are coming against them, and they're, like, freaking out because they're like, oh, the Egyptians are going to kill us. And then the Red Sea just parts, and they're able to walk through. They walk through. God makes the whole sea close in over the Egyptians. They all die. They get to the other side, and then, you know, you'd think that the Israelites, just having seen all this stuff, would know that God would continue providing for them. But they were hungry, so they started grumbling, and then God gave them manna from heaven. And then they were thirsty, so they started grumbling, and then Moses took his rod and he struck a rock with it and water came out of it. And, and all these things happened. And we finally arrive at Exodus 23, verse 23. And things are actually pretty good. Uh, when you read the Bible, there's not a lot of times where God's like stoked about what the Israelites are doing. And the Israelites are stoked about what's happening with their lives either. But we're actually coming to one of those rare times in Exodus 23. So God makes a promise to the Israelites. He says, For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, so that you may live there. And I will destroy them completely. You must not worship the gods of these nations or serve them in any way or imitate their evil practices. Instead, you must utterly destroy them and smash their sacred pillars. You must serve only the Lord your God if you do. Um, if you do, I will bless you with food and water and I will protect you from illness. There will be no miscarriages or infertility in your land, and I will give you long, full lives. 
I will send my terror ahead of you and create panic among all the people whose lands you invade. I will make all your enemies turn and run. I will send terror ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, Hittites. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals would multiply and threaten you. Now, I've read these, these verses a lot of times. Um, not because I'm super spiritual, but because uh, every year I try a new Bible reading plan and I get like two months in, and this is like about the two-month mark, and then I'm kind of like done. So I always get to this part, and I've always read it, and the thing that always sticks out to me when I read this is God says he's going to do all these things. He's going to bring them into this land. He's going he's to give them the promised land, but he says, I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals would multiply and threaten you. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking... Yeah, like, that's not great that the land's going to become desolate and there's going to be, like, wild animals and stuff. But, like, the alternative is that there's giants living in the land that I'm going to have to fight and wage war against that have been trained for war since birth. And in my opinion, I'm just, I'm just thinking, like, I would say to God, like, hey, God, like, maybe just wipe out those nations. I'll take the wild animals. Me and a bunch of friends can go do some, like, big game hunting you know, we can get some nice lions and all this stuff that's, like, super illegal now. But back then, it would have been totally legal. And, and clear the land of this, it, it, rather than have to deal with all of these nations. See, God had brought the Israelites out of the oppression of Egypt into a promised land, a new land. They were beginning to walk in the new life that God had made for them. And... They were at the precipice of deciding what they were going to plant in their lives. Were they going to plant faith and hope and trust, or were they going to plant something else? Well, unfortunately, as I was saying earlier, um, the Israelites are very, they have very short memories. And about a month later, Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai to talk with God. And the Israelites, having just agreed to not put any God before God, they, they make themselves a nice golden calf. And they start worshiping the golden calf. And then God, Moses comes down, you know, he, he lays down the law, literally throws down the law, and it just kills people and stuff. And then all of that's taken care of. It, it did. Um, and all of that's taken care of, and then, like, they kind of learn their lesson, and then they're like, okay, let's go to the promised land. So they go to the promised land, and when they, when they reach the promised land, the edge of the promised land, Moses decides, we're going to send out some spies to scope out what our new... Uh, what our new land's going to be like. So it's pretty much like, like House Hunters International. You know, I'm sure all of us have seen House Hunters International, and you're like watching this show. I don't know who I was talking about this with the other day, but you're watching this show, and there's like this couple, and you're like, this couple looks like they're probably like making $40,000 a year. And they're on this show, House Hunters International, and they're in like Paris or London or something. And then the realtor's like, so uh, what's your guys' budget? And they're like, uh, we're thinking around $6.4 million dollars. You're just like, where did these people get this money? Like, how do you have this much money? And also, how do you have a job that you can just lift up your whole family and go over there and work, I don't know, maybe like millennial startup or something. But all that to say, this is what the Israelites were doing. They were going to their new land. They were going and they were checking out their new digs. They had unlimited, they had unlimited resources because God had promised that they were going to receive this land. So they go into the land and there's 12 spies. And, and out of the 12 spies... Um, all of them, all the spies come back and they, they give a report to the Israelites and they say, 
10 of the 12 spies say, this land is amazing. But the only problem is that there's a lot of enemies and, you know, they look really big and really strong and I just don't know if we should kind of like do this. Like, I don't know if we're able to do this. And so rather than planting in the Israelites hope and trust and reliance on God, they actually planted fear and distrust and they brought disunity to the Israelites. And what, what God did at this point is he said, okay, if you're, not gonna, if you're not gonna trust me, if you're gonna do your own thing, then you're gonna march around the desert until you do trust me. And so the Israelites turn back around, they march around the desert for 40 years until that whole generation dies off. And God, God, they didn't trust that God was gonna keep his promise to wipe out the, wipe out the enemy. I grew up going to church, and, and uh, like I said, I've read these stories a lot of times, but I've always thought to myself, like, man, how are these Israelites so, like, so ridiculous? You know, they, 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 do one, they say one thing, and then two seconds later, they do something else. But what I found out when I was growing up is that the Israelites actually represent me. They actually represent us. And in the Bible, when you're reading the story of the Israelites, you're actually reading your story. You're reading what it means, what God's patience is, and what his, his life is in relation to us. And so when I see these Israelites are just like, you know, they say they're not going to, like, worship any god but, but Yahweh, and then they build a golden calf, I'm like, man, those guys are idiots. But then I look at my life, and I'm like, God, I'm going to do this. And then two weeks later, I do the opposite thing I said I was going to do. So I ask myself, so I ask myself again, well, if God really wanted the Israelites to enter the promised land, why didn't he just wipe out the enemy? If he really wanted that for them, why didn't he just go take care of it? Don't even give them an opportunity to fail. Well, in Judges 2.20, we actually find the answer to this question that not only has uh, an explanation for the Israelites back then, but it also has implications for us today. So Judges 2.20 20 to 23 says, So the Lord burned with anger against Israel. He said, Because these people have violated my covenant, which I made with their ancestors and have ignored, and they have ignored my command, I will no longer drive out the nations that Joshua left unconquered when he died. I did this to test Israel, to see whether or not they would follow the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. That is why the Lord left those nations in place. He did not quickly drive them out or allow Joshua to conquer them all. And Judges 3 also defines uh, further why, why God didn't wipe out all those nations. And it says, these are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test those Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. These are the nations, the Philistines, those living under the five Philistine rulers, all the Canaanites, the Sidonites, the Hivites living in the mountains of Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon to Lebo Hamath. These people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands the Lord had given to their ancestors through Moses. So God had not wiped out these nations so that the Israelites could learn that they needed to partner with God. They needed to learn that they had to have a dependence on God in order to reach the full promise and fulfillment that God had given them. Uh, as Christians, we know that Christ has made us new creations. He's given us a new start, a rebirth. And with that new start, he's given us so many blessings. But I think it's easy for us to think the exact same way the Israelites thought and think, when I become a Christian, God's just going to take care of all of the enemies. God's just going to do all of the hard work. 
God didn't want the Israelites to claim a part of the promise. He wanted them to claim the whole thing. When we give our lives to Christ, he gives us all of himself. He's not holding anything back. There's nothing that we can do or ever earn that will give us more of God. We already have all of him. But he does desire that we start walking out and looking more like him. He desires to refine our character. He desires that we have more influence so that we can tell more people about Christ. And those are things that don't just happen automatically upon salvation. Those are things that we need to start growing towards, that we need to start walking towards, just like the Israelites need to start walking towards their promise. So Numbers 33:55 says, But if you fail to drive out the people who live in the land... Those who remain will be like splinters in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will harass you in the land where you live. You see, the Israelites, they were still able to live in the land. They were still able to to take part of that promise. But what God said is, if you don't wipe these people out, if you don't take care of these problems, if you don't continue walking the fulfillment of the promise that I've given you, these things are going to be thorns in your sides and slivers in your eyes, which slivers in your eyes sounds super painful. I would not want that. Um, So in order to reap a good harvest, planting requires three key ingredients. So the first ingredient is that planting requires partnership. Partnership with Christ is the only way that we can expect to grow. As we allow God to work in us and move through us, we will start seeing a harvest. If I equate this to actual planting of flowers, we are like the seed and God is like the soil, the water, the fertilizer, and the sun. Without him, we can't really do it. There are those plants that are like those air plants that are really popular right now that I don't know how they survive. They just like kind of hang in the air. Not in the air, like in a little thing in the air that's hung from the roof. (laughs) They're not magical. Um, But all of plants need a combination of these things. Without these things, plants cannot survive. We need to be in partnership with God. Without God, we can't continue moving into the promise that he's given us. A few years ago, I did a road trip. Um, It was a crazy road trip from Edmonton all the way to Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. And uh, we were doing, yeah, Cabo. And uh, it sounds super sketchy. We were delivering a car to Mexico. Um, But it was, it had nothing to do with the drug cartel. So, you know, don't don't tell the cops anything. We also told the border patrol and they were pretty sketched out about it. Uh, But we had our, we had our Hillsong CD playing in the car when the guy pulled us over. And then he was like searching the car and stuff. And then... We got back to the car, and it was like a Brian Houston sermon that was playing over the speakers that he hadn't turned off. So I just believe in that, you know, that guy was influenced for the rest of his life through that. Um, but we did this road trip, and we, we, drove all the way, <laughs> we drove all the way down to Cabo. And along the way, we decided that we didn't want to waste our time on these huge freeways, like Highway 5 that goes down the state. It's just like crazy freeways with these big trucks all over the place. We decided we're in a convertible Mini Cooper, we should do this thing the right way. So we, we were halfway between uh, Portland and L.A., and we decided to veer off towards Crescent City in Northern California. And so we're in Northern California, and we're, we're heading that way, and we get to this small town to gas up, and, like, there's this, um, there's this coffee shop in, in the States called Dutch Bros. I don't know if anyone's ever had it. It's, like, the super sweet, like, latte things, iced lattes. And there, we got to this town, and there was probably, like, 2,000 people in the whole town, and... The way that Dutch Bros works is it's like they have these little huts, like a hut smaller than this drum cage right here, and that's their whole coffee shop, and it's just on the side of the road. And this town of 2,000 people had like 20 of these huts all along the road. They were just like so stoked on Dutch Bros. And then I had one in my hand, and I get out of the car, and I'm like gassing up, and this guy comes up to me. He's like, 
dude, you got Dutch bros? Sick. And I'm like, there's like 20 Dutch bros. Like, that's like if someone came to church with a Tim Hortons. And I'm like, dude, Tim Hortons? No way. He's just like stoked. So that actually has nothing to do with the story. Just a super weird experience in my life. So we continued. It, it kind of started like this magical drive, though. And so we're, we're, driving, we're driving on this highway, and it had just been revitalized, so the highway was freshly paved. And we're in this convertible Mini Cooper. It's just like love and life. And like, if you've seen the movie Cars, there's the scene where like the, got the male car and the female car like driving through like all the coolies and stuff, and it's like so romantic. That's pretty much what the drive was like, except for with trees. And so we're driving, and there's these like crazy 180 degree uh, like turns around these mountains, and we're just like ripping down this road. There's no traffic. And all of a sudden, as we're driving down this road, I look up, and there are the biggest trees that I have ever seen in my life that anyone's really ever seen in their lives because we were in the redwoods in Northern California. Now, if you've been to the redwoods, you understand, but if you haven't been there, I just want to kind of explain to you what the redwoods are like. So the redwoods are so tall that they can grow up to be over 350 feet tall. To put that in perspective, in downtown Edmonton, there are only five buildings taller than 350 feet. So if you go to City Hall, downtown Edmonton, across from City Hall, there's a building called the CN Tower. The trees can grow taller than that, that building. They can grow up to 32 stories. So we're driving through this thing, th this forest, and I'm just like, it, it was this whole like weird magical experience where I'm just like, I put my seat in full recline. I wasn't driving, um, the other guy was driving. <laughs> put my seat in full recline, I'm just like lying back and these trees are just towering over me. And the reason that these trees can grow to be so tall and so big other than their genetics is because they're in the exact perfect climate that, that helps things grow. They, they're in a place where there's a lot of sunlight throughout the year. They're, they're in a place where the ocean, there's, there's a fog that comes up off of the ocean and there's tons of rain on the coast. They're in a place where the soil is extremely rich, where the, the roots can go down very deep. And that's exactly what it's like for us when we're planting and we're being planted uh, with Christ, that we need all of those ingredients. And if we don't have Christ, if we're not in partnership with him, we'll never reach the promise that he's given us. So the second ingredient to reaping a good harvest is patience. Patience is my least favorite thing. Um, and I think that's why God makes a lot of people parents is because they need to learn patience. Um, but I, want, I showed that, that little video at the start because that's, that shows you, you know, we were seeing plants grow in seconds. But what it actually is is plants take so much time to grow. They take weeks and sometimes months. And for those redwoods, they, take, they can take 2,000 years to grow that tall. And patience is so necessary. The Israelites, they weren't able to take the whole land because they needed to grow and fill the land. They couldn't simply take the whole land because of their small population. They needed to have the patience to trust the process of taking the land. Patience means that we don't attempt to rush things or do things on our own strength. So one of the easiest things to do when you own a plant is to overwater it. And about five years ago, I received a plant um, from, from this girl, uh, the relationship didn't work out, just like the plant didn't work out. And, um, <laughs> and she gave me a cactus. 
And in my mind, you just give water to plants and they will just thrive, right? Like just put them in a bathtub, fill it with water, and this thing's gonna be huge in a few weeks. So I kept on watering this cactus, and within about like two weeks of me having this cactus, I killed it. And so that's the same thing. I didn't have patience. I needed to realize that this cactus wasn't going to just grow up overnight. It needed time. It needed space. It needed less water, and it needed me to be patient with it. See, patience produces character. Character is produced by consistency, not wild, huge decisions that happen in a single moment, but our character is defined and refined and corrected as we do the little things well over the long term. The Israelites, they started out so strong. The first generation went in there. They wiped out a bunch of the inhabitants of the land. They claimed their promise. But the problem was that the next generation came in, and they hadn't learned the ways of God. They hadn't learned that they needed to do this thing. They needed to continue working on this. They needed to have patience. It wasn't going to be a wipeout over one night. It was going to be a generation over generation in order to take this promised land. In Joshua 15, 13 to 19, uh, there's a short narrative about a man named Caleb. So I was telling you guys that there was those 12 spies that entered the promised land. And 10 of them said, brought back a bad report. But there was actually two of them that brought back a good report. Two of them that said, let's go take this land. God is on our side. We can do this. And those two people were Joshua and, or, yeah, Joshua and Caleb. And Caleb was... Um, Caleb was given a promise that he would inherit the land. So those two men were the only two from that generation that actually made it into the promised land. And when, when Caleb is receiving his allotment of land, uh, they, they handed out this allotment of land to each person, each clan member, each tribe. And these people were given the land, but the land was still occupied with the enemy. So they were given the land, but they're like, okay, go take this land, but you're going to have to destroy all these armies and stuff first. And so Caleb's given his his land, and he's getting up there in age, and he decides that he needs, to, he needs to teach the next generation what it means to fight for the promise of God. And so in Joshua 15, 13 to 19, uh, sorry, Joshua 15, verse 16, Caleb says, I'll give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the one who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. And Othniel, the son of Caleb's brother Kenaz, was the one who conquered it. So Aksa became Othniel's wife. See, it's such a tiny, uh, almost like insignificant story, you would think, just of this man going, giving, giving his daughter to another man, and the man going and, and take, taking over the enemy and, and, and moving into the promise that God had given them. But the reality is, is that uh, Israel had, soon after Caleb died and Joshua died, and, and Israel no longer knew the ways of God. They didn't know um, that they were going to have to be patient. They were going to have to persevere. They were going to have to keep on pushing to maintain the promise. That's alliteration right there. Um, and so, so they didn't realize that. And so what Israel did is they said, God, we need someone to rise up to fight on our behalf. We need someone who's going to lead the way. And if you, turn to, if you turn in Judges, in Judges it says that the first judge in Israel, his name was Othniel. It was this same man who had been trained by Caleb to go and fight for the promise that was given. Uh, the same man who knew that it was not going to be an overnight thing that was going to be take patience. And because Othniel learned this, he was able to help Israel and lead them further into the promise that God had given them. So the third ingredient to secure a good harvest is understanding that planting sometimes requires pruning. On Thursday night, I heard a preacher talk about living, um, uh, people that live on their past victories, live on 
their past blessing, live on the things that God has done in the past. We've all met those people who they're like, oh man, 10 years ago God did this. And you ask like, well, what has God, like what, what's happened in your life recently? And they're like, well, 10 years ago this happened. And it's like, well, yeah, but like, was that the last time that something happened? Or is it like, are you still moving forward with God? And you just always hear these people saying this. And back to the plants, about a month ago, I got a coffee plant. So it was my redemption time. It was time for me to be able to let a plant survive since, it was the first time since that cactus. And so I got this coffee plant and it was, it's, you know, a pretty tiny plant. And so I was like, you know, I can't really mess this thing up. Give it a little water, put it in the sun. And within like three days, half of the leaves were brown and the thing was dying. And I was super disheartened. I was like very close to just throwing the thing out because every single time I looked at it, I just saw my failure. <laughs> and, um, and I decided that, okay, before I throw it out, I should do a little research on care for plants. And one of the things that I found is that pruning is extremely beneficial to the health, health of plants. So if you have a plant and there's leaves that are dying, or even sometimes there aren't leaves that are dying, there's just branches that you need to prune away. And as you prune those things away, the plant will begin growing and will begin reaching a new, uh, even height in, my, in the case of my coffee plant, that, that it was never able to do before. See, for us, we've all met people that have either had past successes or past failures. And we can live on those past successes or past failures. But God wants us to live today. The Israelites, they walked into the promised land. They had past successes. They, they escaped Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They made it through the desert. They conquered Jericho. They conquered some of their land. And they could have just stayed there. And in fact, they did just stay there. They stayed in their past victories and rather than moving into something new that God had for them, they stayed there. For us, sometimes we need to prune those things away. It doesn't mean that we need to forget them, but it means that we leave them behind so that we can see even further growth, that we can use those things as testimonies. And for other of us, sometimes we've had failures in our lives. Sometimes there's been things that, that weigh us down and, and we've tried so hard and got so far, but in the end it didn't really matter. Um, <laughs> But we've tried and we've failed and, and because of that failure and because of that, just that trying, we don't want to keep on trying. But I believe today God's telling us that sometimes we need to prune those leaves away, prune those things away of failure, prune those, those past hurts and regrets away so that we can reach the promise that God has given us. See, often we hear a sermon like this and we hope for immediate drastic change in our lives. But as I said, step two is patience. It's a slow and steady race. So what does a harvest look like? A harvest looks like moving from anxiety to trust, moving from fear to pain, producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. It means moving from bitterness to forgiveness, taking up our cross daily and dying to ourselves, making allowance for other people's faults, showing mercy, allowing Christ's peace to work through us. And moving from greed to thankfulness. Those are just some of the harvest that we can receive if we live these lives. So for those of us today who've been part of the church or believers for a long time, it's natural to feel like this sermon is for those who may just be beginning. But the reality is this sermon is for people, whether they're in the seed phase of their lives or whether they're the 2,000-year-old redwood phase of their life. This, this is for every single person. 
as soon as we stop growing, we're not moving forward into the promise that God has given us. I believe that God wants to drop new things in our lives today. He wants to produce new fruit in our lives. He wants to graft new branches into who we are so that we can have influence, so we can change our workplaces, we can change our families, we can change our worlds. And, and like I said, the Israelites, when they moved into that promised land, they were, they were still living. They, they could have survived. They could have just made it through. But they weren't living in the fullness of what God, they weren't living in all of the potential that they could have had. Pastor Bro, why don't you come up? They were just living with a little bit of what they could, what they could have accomplished through God. I believe for us today, for myself, for each person here, that God wants us to continue moving into that fullness. That he doesn't want us to stop at last week or last year or today even. He wants us to keep moving forward. And he's, he's proud of us. He's happy with what we've done. He's, he's super excited to partner with us. But he, he sees so much more potential in our lives that we don't even see. Today, I, I'm, I'm going to read Colossians 3, which is like really 17 verses long. Um, but it, it ties everything together. And, and this is fruit that can be produced in our lives. And these are things that can be trimmed away. So why don't you just follow along in Colossians 3 with me? I'm going to read it off the screen. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you have died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ and all its riches fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I just believe that that, that chapter in Colossians 3 ties together all of these things. It shows what needs to be pruned away. It shows what needs to be grown, what we can produce when we're with God. That's the promise of God. The promise of God is that we can move into all of those amazing things. 
And so today, I just want to sing this song a few times. And as we sing this, just just ask God to plant something new in you. Ask God to, to take you from, from the partial promise that you've received and take you into a fuller, uh, a greater thing. Not just for your own sake, but for the sake of others, for the sake of, of your, your co-workers and your family. And, and the world is out there that needs to know the message of Jesus Christ. So as we sing this, just ask God to just plant that deep within your heart. listening to the Engage Life powered by Engage City Church. If you like what you heard, check out engagechurch.ca.